Lucky you. Best 36 holes in golf. You tuned in to Alternate Shots Podcast. Barney's Army. Where we talk about golf. Barkies, Sandys. Poker. Bond. James Bond. Horse racing. I'm all in. Great movies. Alfred Hitchcock. We have no script. And down the stretch they come. We're glad you joined us. Frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn. (laughs) (laughs) Whoop. Let's start again. Today, we have a celebrity, and I don't mean just in golf, in so many areas. He's had such a life and has only lived half of it. I know he's got another half in front of him. I do. It's cool to have Billy Harmon on the podcast. I'm very, very grateful to you. We were originally members of Waikiki Guild. And so dad would let us come over play on Mondays was caddy day back then. And so I can remember maybe nine or 10 uh, playing on Mondays. Uh, when dad finished third in the open in 59, I was only eight. So I was upset that he didn't win. <laughs> I realized now him finishing third in the open at age 43 with six kids as a host pro might've been a greater feat than one of the masters to be honest with you. But so my memories kind of started then, I would say, uh, eight, nine years old. And were you playing already? You were. You oh, yeah, were... I was playing. Yep. I can remember we would uh, go in and get a brown cow or something. That's a term, you know, and I realize now the bartender probably hated us because he had to go in the kitchen to get the ice cream. And stuff, ice cream. <laughs> looking back on it, I bet he hated seeing the, the little Harmon kids come in there on Mondays, you know. I was over at Sirenoid making a... Bets for brown cows on the putting green when you were seven or eight years old. <laughs> what a great era in golf we grew up in, huh? You know, I think, you know, looking back on it, um, uh, Butch was a little bit older, but Craig, Dick, and I seemed to play in a, you know, a lot of tournaments in the summers. You know, the Westchester Juniors, Westchester Amateurs, Met stuff. So it seemed like uh, we were all playing in tournaments. It seemed like all the time, I'm sure. Uh, had to drive dad nuts. You know, I remember talking to, to Jay Haas one time and he, he loves Wingfoot. Jay played in his first US Open in 74. Mm-hmm. And he's the only guy that made the cut in the 74 Open, the 84 Open, the 97 PGA and the 2006 Open, which is a pretty cool little tidbit. But he said the thing that always got him about Wingfoot was that when you were driving to the course, there wasn't one shot or one hole that scared you to death, you know? Because there was, you could uh, swing at it, and and a recovery shot at Wingfoot was a recovery shot because there really are no hazards, you know, to speak of, and you'd have to really hit a bad shot to get one out of bounds. And so, uh, Wingfoot to me uh, allowed you to play golf, and if you were a real good player, it was more of a bogey course than a double bogey course. It would just kind of wear you out, you know. But um, there were no penalty shots, and so to me, it was uh, just golf. Great holes, probably the eight best par threes on one piece of property. No, no question. Golf, in my opinion. If you had to make a par on any one of the eight holes, you had to make it for a big sum of money. Or which would you choose? I'd say three east would be the easiest for me. I agree I, with that. Yeah, I, but other than that, I think the other seven. Uh, I don't know. I don't think I'd want to have to make a par on one of those to. For any great no because if you miss the green on those you got all kinds of yeah you're all kinds of but three you know it's a, it's just a, a little more receptive and a little shorter 
Uh, 13 is, uh, my father used to say, it's a hard three and an easy five. So Yeah, yeah. I, I tell people it's easier to hit 13 and one than two. <laughs> that's a very good line there. And that's very true, by the way. And uh, I remember as a kid, I'm not going to mention the member's name, but he was a very classic member at the time. And I was playing with he and his wife. And we were playing 13 East and uh, his wife was a beginner and she hit it in the bunker on 13. And if the member was smart, he would have just told her to take it out of the bunker because as a, you know, as a good player, it's hard to get it on the green. So a beginner literally had no chance. And he kept telling her to open the face of the wedge. And uh, she didn't know what that meant. And she wasn't doing it. And after about the fourth time, she told him to shut up with a bad word somewhere in the middle of that. And the member said, you opened the wrong face. <laughs> 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 well, there's no margin for error, for one. I mean, exactly. You've got to hit a beautiful golf shot on that hole. And, uh, you know, if you, let's say, take the correct club and push it, you know, you're not going to carry to the, to, let's say, what we'd call the front right edge now. So you're going to hit it in the bunker. And then you never want to go down left. And so there's a lot of uh, things that you don't want to do on that hole. And I think that interference affects everybody's swing, including mine. It's just a great, great hole. And it's too bad they don't make more holes like that in golf nowadays. Tilly liked to put on many of, if not quite most, of his courses, what he called it, a tiny Tim. That's today always known as a little Tilly. The game is such a power game, but I bet if you had a U.S. Open on 13 East, uh, I bet it would be easily in the top 10 hardest holes on the course. Right. Absolutely. When the, week was over, when the week was over, maybe even uh, higher than that. Well, I, I saw Mike Gilmore on the tee one time during some outing, and he was hitting every group would come through. I said, Mike, what are you hitting? He said, well, I can hit a wedge here, but if I hit the wedge, it comes all the way back off. So right. I'm hitting this little... Chip nine. What, what's, what does he mean by when he's saying he hit a chip nine? Just a three-quarter shot. Um, first mistake he was, was was picking that hole to be hitting a shot on. <laughs> yeah. So he's a, a dumb SOB in that regard. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. I might even want to, you know, take a front tee on six east or something before I'd go to 13 east, even with a wedge. So, you know, Bobby Christie was on. He was talking it. about his record with you. He's 2-0. He beat me in the uh, junior championship. I think I shot 72 qualifying and he shot 85. And then he beat me in the club championship. I think the year after I won it, I think he actually might have beaten me in the first match. And, uh, you know, I think I beat him by about 20 shots in the qualifying there. But he had my number. He did. He's He's two and oh, I got to eat crow, boy. I got to, there's. <laughs> he said he was, I think he said was seven up on you going to the back. I made a, I made a comeback. He ended up beating me one up on both of them, as I recall. Uh, and he never misses an opportunity to bring it up. And if I were him, I would do it even more than he does it to me. So, uh, no, that's, uh, that's obviously one of my memories. The Christie family was a great part of our lives. You know, we played, um, in November, Craig and Butch and I played Augusta. And uh, after dinner one night, we went up into the champion's locker room and uh, we sat by dad's locker. 
And we actually kind of got emotional, you know, thinking that uh, th this year will be dad's 75th anniversary of his win. And we were thinking about how cool it was. Butch is 79, Craig 76, I'm 72. And we're sitting by our dad's locker in the champion's room and we're emotional. And it, we sat there for about two hours and we reminisced. Then another member came in with his three guests and then another member came in and I don't know, we just kept telling stories and it was like two hours later and uh, I don't think anybody had said a word other than the three of us. And I saw one of the members the next morning and I apologized. I said, God, we kind of took over up there, you know? And the guy said, when my three guests got back to the cottage, they turned to me and said it was the two greatest hours I ever spent in golf. So I can imagine that. Yeah, so it was kind of interesting because um, the next week I went down to the tailor-made place here in Carlsbad to get fitted for clubs and Scotty Scheffler was there. And I don't know Scotty. And I'm uh, just growing up in the family that I grew up in, I've, I've learned to leave celebrities alone. But I actually wanted to tell him the story of us being in that locker room and for him to imagine that his kids that aren't even born yet, 80 years from now, might sit in that locker room by their dad's locker and say, my dad won the masters. Cause you can't imagine that when you're a kid, you know, you can't imagine even what it meant to us. I mean, we got choked up about it, you know, and we ended up talking about dad and Wingfoot and everything. And Craig said something very interesting. I, I said, I have a picture of uh, dad played with Hogan the last round of the Open in 59. And it's a picture taken probably from the front uh, right of the tee. So it was Hogan and his follow through. You saw the clubhouse in the back was beautiful. And dad was there leaning on his club. I now know that dad shot 70 and beat Hogan by six shots, finished third, lost by two. And I tried to imagine any other club pro in the world that could have done that. Let's say they were on the last tee with uh, Tiger Woods with a chance to win the Open. They were going to beat Tiger by six. And I thought about how comfortable he must have been, you know, to do that. Because he wasn't, he was 43 or four years old. He wasn't playing any tournaments. And Craig said something interesting. I'd never heard this. He said, well, dad must have thought he was one of them. Right. So when he played with Hogan or Snead or some of the better players, he knew that they were, you know, better than him for the most part but he didn't think that if he played good he couldn't beat him you know so he must have felt that I'm kind of one of them he and was one of them he was as it turned out but a story that will uh add to that is Craig Wood told me that when he hired dad he asked my dad what type of player you want to be and he said well I want to be like you and we called him Uncle Craig. And Uncle Craig said, uh, well, the way you hold on to the club and that snap hook you hit, you won't get out of Westchester County. <laughs> and so my dad, which was true, he said, well, I love the game. I'll do whatever it takes. And Craig Wood said, yeah, well, a lot of people say that, but when the improvement doesn't come right away, they'll retreat back to what feels good. And he said, your father got mad at me and said, I'll do what it takes. And... So he did do what it took. And then I also have a photo in my uh, office at the club of the very first uh, master's champions dinner. It was called the organization meeting. It's written on the, on the 
And dad is, uh, they've got all the champions and Bobby Jones and Cliff Roberts. And dad is standing up and Craig Wood and a few other guys were kneeling down in this picture. And Craig just by coincidence was kneeling under dad. So I said to dad one time, did you ever need a uncle Craig <laughs> about him telling you that you weren't gonna be any good. Now you're at the champions dinner with him at Augusta. And dad said, yeah, I needled him. I, I uh, named my second son, Craig Wood Harmon because had Craig Wood not told me the truth, I'd have never been any good. And think of that lesson nowadays. You know, if, a, uh, if an older guy tells a young person the truth, we get him thrown in jail for abuse. <clears throat> so his feeling was that because Craig Wood leveled with him and that he did love the game and he did work at it, he said, I needled him. I named my son Craig Wood Harmon. Well, but I think it also is a great tribute to his coach, Randy Smith in Dallas, who teaches a lot of good players and he doesn't get enough credit for it because in many ways he's a lot like Butch. He doesn't change. Uh, that's what we were brought up. I tell people all the time that our father, um, I always thought dad was kind of an uneducated genius. He just saw the world through a different lens. And he would tell us that when you work with a good player, figure out why their swing works, not what's wrong with it. Because they wouldn't be good if they had a bad swing. So dad would love watching talent. And when I would go out and sit in the cart with him and watch him, he'd say, now here's a guy that you, you should never change his swing because he hits every shot the same. And so I think we didn't really know it at the time that we were gonna be teachers. But if you look at Dustin Johnson, you know Butch didn't change that bowed left wrist because our father had a bowed left wrist. So you can't tell if you go to a tour event who Butch teaches because he doesn't have a system. Right. You know? Other teachers, you can, other players you can say, you know, Sean Foley teaches this guy or Hank Haney teaches that guy or Ledbetter taught this guy. But the, the foundation and the groundwork was put into place by, by Claude Harmon. ...and famous New York course, winged foot at Mamaroneck, where champion Claude Harmon is the home pro. Number 10 has been called the All-American Hole because it is rated by the experts as one of the best of 18 selected holes in America. On the green, not you can do with it. Going, going, gone, a birdie too. And I'm sure he, he learned it, all, a lot of this stuff from Craig Wood. So it all started, you know, I've said it a million times that if, if Craig Wood had never hired Paul Harmon in 1941, the only place you'd have ever read our names was in the phone book. Everything started for the Harmon family that day and we really owe everything that we've, I don't know what we've achieved in golf. Sometimes I sit back in the audience and I look at what's happened. Dad and Butch and Craig and Dick, I don't know what the hell I've contributed. And I kind of just go, wow, this is really cool. You know, this is a body of work that is really remarkable, but it's all wingfoot to me, you know? And so I would like to think if you guys were sitting in the grill room watching a tournament and they mentioned Butch's name or Craig or mine, and you were sitting with a couple of guests, you'd turn and say, those are our guys. Absolutely. You know, when I went back for the open, uh, this is a funny story. Uh, I talked to Mark Loomis 
And he agreed to hire me to announce the open in 2020 because I told him nobody knows a place and loves it like me and I don't choke in front of a camera. <laughs> and so the first time in the history of televised sports, they changed networks six weeks before the tournament. It's never happened. Can you imagine a Super Bowl? <clears throat> it's never happened. Crushing. So I had no, my shortest announcing career ever. <laughs> so I still wanted to come back because I love Wingfoot and I figured it might be the last open, you know, while I'm alive. He said, but if you volunteer... Would you volunteer? I said, yeah, I just want to be there. So the first day I was a spotter on Four West. <laughs> I, I was a starter in the practice rounds. That was cool. Yep. And then I was uh, right behind the green on 10 West on Friday. And my replacement didn't come. So I was there for from six in the morning till whenever. Then 14 West, I was right by the green. Then I caddied for Mike Gilmore because he played with Abraham Anch. When, when Mike asked me to caddy, I got in touch with Craig and uh, Butch. You guys wouldn't know this, but Dad, Dad made a 40-footer on the last hole. Um... Top golfers in a top tourney, the United States Open. Ben Hogan tees off. Tied for second going into the third round. Sammy Sneed moves into contention with a three under par 67. Arnold Palmer, one of the starting favorites. He loses three strokes on the leader. It's Bill Casper of Apple Valley, California, out ahead of them all. With good all-around play and superb putting, as right here and now on the 17th hole, he holds his lead in the third round in a match marked by storms and stiff winds sweeping the course. Home fans are rooting for Claude Harmon, the club pro, who stayed in contention with play like this 40-foot putt. In the climax, Casper holds out with 74 on the final round, an aggregate 282. And I, I don't know what where came over me, but I told them I'm going to be on the 18th green tomorrow and I'm going to go to that, that place. I know where it was. And I'm going to tip my hat to my dad and my mom and Dick. So what a coincidence. You know, I was devastated that I couldn't announce. And then by Sunday, I'm standing where dad made the putt in 1959. And I tip my hat to the three that are no longer with us. And... We went in the, the Mike's office and he says, let's go out and watch uh, the rest of the tournament. And I said, no, I'm out of here. I, this has been the greatest week of my life. But what just happened out there was so unplanned. You couldn't plan it. But somebody asked me why I came back to volunteer. I said, I didn't come back to volunteer. I came back to say, I love you. And I mean that. I, I came back to Wingfoot in 2020 to say thanks. Because we owe everything to Wingfield. I mean, even, you know, Bobby Christie getting to harpoon me about him beating me. That's part of my life there. And I, I like it. Don't worry, I can handle it. Because <laughs> he couldn't well, play house. He got lucky. The pin was kind of in the middle. Yep. And dad was uh, in the back uh, left, I guess, if you were. Oh. So he had about a 40-footer. And had the pin in back then. And... Uh, the picture I have in my office is the, the ball is about six inches from the hole and it's taken from the right of the green. So you can see the clubhouse and all the gallery and he's going for the hat. He's doing the early call, you know? <laughs> and so for me to be standing on that green that day, what, what were the, the confluence of events, you know, starts with the networks changed and all this stuff. And, and so I went back there to say, I love Wingfoot. And all of a sudden, I'm standing on that green, and I get to uh, salute my brother, Dick, and my mom and dad. 
Yeah, Dad Remember? was more behind the hole. Norman okay. was slightly more pin high. To the putt that Norman make, you couldn't make one out of a hundred. Dave, this putt down the hill, uh, what about this one? You wouldn't care to name the odds on getting this in one, would you? No, thank you. Plus, uh, he's got to try not to make six. Yeah, I mean, the dilemma here, are you want to make it, obviously, is you want to make all of them. But if he gives it a wrap, Peter, it's going to go five or six feet back. Not bad-looking putt, though, is it? Can you believe it? Do you think that some things are fate and some things are meant to be because you can't do any better than that? That is almost awesome and godlike. Fuzzy, he may think he's made a birdie. I don't know what Fuzzy thinks. He'll I, I doubt that, sick. seriously, Peter. Uh, but uh, would you like to go over the three fours that man just made <laughs> at 16, 17, uh, 18? You can't make one four out of the three. No, I think it, it's just incredible. And that, when you try and explain to non-golfers what this game's all about and how it can change, it, it's seemingly such a passive game. He surrenders. He sur <laughs> <laughs> that is marvelous, you see. <laughs> <laughs> that is something uh, that doesn't happen in too many other sports. And Greg <laughs> responding. How bad was that second shot he hit? It was, what would you say that was? He had a perfect drive as he was Six a great driver. And he hit it in the middle of those bleachers. Yeah. And so it, it was unbelievably bad shot, really, because the bleachers had to be 20 yards to the right of the green, I would think. At least. So it was 40 or 50 yards offline with a six iron, one of the great players ever. And he did it at Augusta in 86. And so isn't that funny how um, you guys play? Water seeks its level, boy. If you, have a, uh, if you have a flaw in your swing or you have the shot, in Hogan's case, you know, the fear of the hook stuff, it's coming, boy. <laughs> the problem is you can almost feel it, you know. Yeah. The thing that is intriguing, there's a lot of intriguing things about Norman, but he's such an enigma to me because he's won 90 tournaments worldwide. So how can you win 90 tournaments and be a choke artist, right? That doesn't go together. Yeah. There's no way you can win that many tournaments. Uh, when Butch worked for him, uh, Butch said something interesting. He said he didn't know how to gear down. So if Tiger had a tournament to win or Jack had a tournament to win, they knew how to shoot for the middle of greens. And, you know, you could write their name on the trophy if they had a one-shot lead with three to play. It was over with. Where Greg, he said he just, he always had just one gear, you know, and he didn't know how to, uh, to gear down or he didn't know how to who change his, his plan with four or five holes left in a tournament when he had a chance to win, he was still trying to strangle the course. And so uh, to think that he had the lead in four majors, I think in the same year, never won one of them. Uh, I don't know, he's a, a, he's a different one to try to figure out, I'd say. And Mickelson did the same thing. I think that's the worst shot ever hit in, in uh, competition, that drive on, on 18 because you guys have been there more than I have, but in my lifetime, I never saw anybody carry a ball into 11 East on the fly. Now you got a little unlucky if the merchandise tent wasn't there, he wins the open. Yep. He's got a pretty easy shot from the, and every time I go to Wingfoot, I stand on that tee and I try to imagine the ball flight that got that ball into the 11th tee fairway on the fly. Knowing that if you miss, you can miss right, 
and chop it out in front of the green and the best wedge player, you know, supposedly probably going to have no more than an eight footer when they open, but he's going to a playoff. He had, you know, I've caddied in tournaments where, you know, Jay's had a one shot lead going the last hole. And I, in my mind, we have two chances to win the tournament. Now we can either win it on this hole or win in a playoff, but don't, <laughs> don't Loser. blow both chances by being uh, stupid, you know, but or 18, the first thing you think is like, don't call that. Don't any, anywhere but left. Anybody in the world that's ever played there more than yeah. twice would know that. Yeah. Don't go left. And not only did he go left, he went a hundred yards. Right. Yeah. So his miss, as we know, if he hits it out to the right, I know the rough was high, but he could chop a wedge down, hit the down slope, run at 30, 40 yards from the green. So if you look at where he was supposed to miss and where he missed, it was probably at least a hundred yards, I would say. Between them. Wow. Unbelievable when you think about it. A guy that good. He could have, he, he, he never looked at that option. I thought the same thing that his only shot, he could have used the slope and the worst he would have been was maybe 10 or 15 feet. And he would have had a, you know, reasonable putt anyway to, but I always thought Phil got Montgomery off the hook because Montgomery made double two. <laughs> right. Phil got him off the hook. There were a whole bunch of guys who couldn't finish because I think I saw a scoreboard in the locker room one day or somewhere at Winkfoot where Phil is kneeling on the ground with his head between his hands. And the only player that played 15 through 18 in even par was Ogilvy. Right. And he and got it up and down at 16, chipped in at 17. That ball was going off the green. Yeah. So because the grain goes towards <laughs> club 21, right? My dad used to say. <laughs> and then an, an Ogilvy never got credit for the pitch he hit on 18 off that awesome. of grass, yeah. you know, to nip it that good. And he never got credit for that, I don't think, because of Montgomery and Mickelson in some ways took away his, uh, you know, they handed him the tournament. But uh, what a what a weird confluence of events when you think about those last few holes. In yeah, the, the last half hour. Yep. Unbelievable, really. Yeah. Were you there in the 1974 Open? Yeah, you know, it's a funny Jay Haas story. Uh, there was an assistant pro named John Busick who played good in that yes. Open. And in fact, after two rounds, I think he was in the top five or six. But on Friday, I, I was standing behind the 12th green watching him. And I looked at my pairing sheet. And I saw, I wanted to see who was coming up 16. And I saw this kid, Jay Haas, was coming up 16. I knew who he was, you know, because he, I think he'd already won the NCAA or Walker Cup player or whatever. And the pin was in the back and he hit a wood. And he rolled halfway up the hill and came back and he made the putt for three. And I remember after watching John, I went to the scoreboard to see if this kid made the cut, you know, whether that was like a critical shot. And he did. He shot 78, 73, made the cut by two, as I recall. So now we'll fast forward four years later. I'm caddying for him. I'd never met him. If, if Craig would have never hired Paul Harmon in 1941, the only place you'd have ever read our names was in the phone book. Everything started for the Harmon family that day. And we really owe everything that we've, I don't know what we've achieved in golf. Sometimes I sit back in the audience and I look at what's happened. Dad and Butch and Craig and Dick, I don't know what the hell I've contributed. And I kind of just go, wow, this is really cool. You know, this is a body of work that is really remarkable, but it's all wingfoot to me. <laughs> Why are you laughing? 
Well, at least we have the laugh to add at the end. <laughs> right. We're, we've gone from 12 handicaps at this to 19 handicaps in just a week. <laughs> that, that's what happened. Somebody changed my grip, and the next thing you know, I can't do the podcast anymore. I felt like I was in the first row of the uh, first pew at church right during the sermon. <laughs> and your brother was poking my you. Brother, my brother was making me laugh. Thanks for joining Billy us Casper, today. Billy Horner. We really appreciate your Double feedback. Indemnity. And please Marky. subscribe to the Two show. Hit them hard. Job. And hit them off. That's 36 holes.